children, young creatives everywhere who are interested in a career in fashion or just want to find out a little bit more about the industry. Today, I've been very lucky because I've been speaking with Dr. Helen Gaborik. And you might think, Dr. Fashion? Mm? How does Caroline even know a doctor, you might be thinking too. But Helen is an associate professor at Durham University Business School. And she did her PhD in the relationship between product development and sustainable consumption. So Helen is going to, first of all, explain to you all about buying and marketing and about her own story, how she got into where she is now. So after that, she's going to be answering some of the questions that you've sent, and she's going to be talking in detail about um, the mass market. So that's the market that most people buy their fashion from and about how it can move forward, becoming more sustainable, ethical, and a more appropriate way for people who aren't necessarily going to upcycle their clothes because they're not that type of person, but still have very strong feelings on sustainability, how they will be able to buy fashion. She's got a lot to say. Uh, she's a good friend, as I said. I've known Helen for very long, ever since she was actually in the industry as a buyer. So um, she talks about what she knows very, very well. So she's very connected with the industry. Um, she's, if you look through her CV, it's like sustainability, ethics, always, always. She's absolutely, and it comes from her core and something that she's been considering for a very long time. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Helen has so much information to tell you, even if you don't think, oh, I don't want to be a buyer, I don't want to go into marketing. You need to listen to this because it all is all part of the big fashion jigsaw. And I'm just really proud of her because it is really important that everybody is invited to the fashion table and that everybody can wear sustainable clothes. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Get Down and Get With It. It's a children's fashion information podcast. And today we will be interviewing a very old friend of mine, but not very old. She's younger <laughs> than me. And her name is Dr. Helen Gavorik. Now, doctor, you might think. Mm. So uh, she's an associate professor in marketing at Durham University Business School. So I think what's going to be really interesting today is to talk, as Helen's going to talk about her involvement with sustainability, but also about another route, a very vital route to get into fashion. And we haven't covered it yet. So I'm really, really excited. So um, welcome, Helen. And um, Caroline. <laughs> Sorry, could be talking over you. Uh, welcome, Helen. It's always been like that. Um, <laughs> me talking over Helen. <laughs> um, so, Helen, the first question that the children ask, um, and it's it's kind of every single th you know every child, young creative thinks this, and that is, what is your role within fashion, and how did you get there? So my role is mainly connected to fashion at the moment in terms of doing uh, research into sustainability in the fashion business. But my previous role has been as a designer in that field and as a buyer. 
So I, I connect back to the career that I had in industry and I've been lecturing for around 20 years now. I can't even remember how many years I've been a lecturer for, but I always still feel like I'm part of the industry and I've sneaked into education because design and fashion are kind of at the core of me and, and my interests. So I did um, a degree in fashion and marketing. I've studied fashion since I was 17. That's, that's when I started. I still feel like I am a student of fashion, even at my age, because it's yes. always changing. And I went to art college after school. I, I'm not even sure if you get art colleges now. I haven't really seen any. Yeah, they've, all been, these so days. Sadly, they've all been sucked into other institutions but yeah 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 so it's similar to being at a further education college but I knew I wanted to do art I did do well academically at school the school were not thrilled about me doing arty subjects and going to do that so you might find that resistance even still yeah. these days um, and then I, I did a general vocational uh, two-year course in art and design. And in the second year, we got chance to do fashion. So that's, yeah, that, that was my starting point really for getting into it. And then I did a degree in fashion and marketing, started off, started off just studying fashion design. And then um, a tutor spotted me and we had an option for the second year to do marketing. And he um, spoke to me and said, you should do marketing and I just thought what on earth is that I don't even know I, I think I'd vaguely heard the word and that was it but I thought oh he's a tutor he must know what I should do um so I studied both alongside each other and um yeah so what that's the that university was. where did you go or was it a poly back then or you know what was the setup where did you go yeah, so I was at what's now called Northumbria University. It was Newcastle Poly because um, as now you could only study fashion at certain places and they are the ones that were the former polytechnics or, or similar. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was in Newcastle for four years. I did a sandwich course, which means that I did a placement. I don't think they say sandwich course anymore. And um, yeah, so I'd, I went there after being at art college for two years. Um, and that's that's how I got into it. And it was such a, a novel, innovative new course. Um, it was the first course of its kind in Europe, I think, maybe in the ah. world. I don't know, might, might have been some in America, don't know. But um, we, we then followed this route. 13 of us graduated together and we all just walked into jobs and we had choices of, of jobs, different different world then it was a groundbreaking course wasn't it mm. yeah it was yeah absolutely and it's still around and and still yeah. has lots of people studying on it still going into jobs I went back there a couple of years ago and I was really impressed to see their exhibition so I'd, I'd encourage anybody to do that any course that you're interested in that has an exhibition um do go along to it because the public yeah. can be invited absolutely yeah, yeah. Any any open day, any exhibition, um, look online. There's a lot of things that universities and colleges are doing at the moment to show what they're about online. So don't let out if you are still in lockdown when you hear this. Don't think that um, you you can't. And you know, just no point looking at the college at all because you can. Yeah. 
yeah yeah so that's yeah that was my background that that led to where I am now I worked in the industry I went into education quite early on when I didn't necessarily expect that I was going to be able to um and didn't have the teaching qualification you don't always need that to get into lecturing even though you need that to go into a school you don't have to in higher education um, and then I, I've just kept links with the industry through the people that I knew there, through going to conferences with industry, sometimes being invited to speak at them myself, which for me is the ultimate kind of accolade and thing that I want to do so that I'm not in this kind of separate academic world that doesn't connect with reality. Brilliant. And so then you, you graduated with Flying Colours and you went into your job and uh what was that first job that you had um, um yeah i went to work for next and i went there as a trainee buyer again i was in a situation where i didn't really know what that was but the lecturers told us that's what we should be applying for um and so some of the other people had done placements in buying offices uh, with some of the retailers in London but I actually did a design placement which, which was lovely I went to a fashion prediction studio in Milan for my placement but it didn't prepare me for um, for buying or to know what was involved we'd had a talk from somebody but who worked in a different area of buying for a department store which is really different to buying for a retailer so I went to work for next as a few of us did from the course and it was, it was a bit like thing, wasn't it back then yeah it really was yeah and people were so excited that we'd got jobs there because yeah. it was really up and coming I can't even think of an equivalent that that we could talk about now, maybe for people who are listening, it, it was more like the early days of ASOS, where that, that was a new and novel thing um, yeah. a few years ago. Um, so a few of us went up. It was a bit like being in halls of residence again because we knew each other and we, you know, we some of us lived together. And um, yeah, so we, we had fun, came to this place called Leicester that I'd never heard of or been to before. And, and I'm in Leicestershire right now still. Um, and so I, yeah, I worked there as a, a buyer thinking, just guessing really that um, I was going to be given all this money to spend for the company and what a terrifying thought that was that I would be responsible. But of course I wasn't. I, I didn't know any different, but um, that's what led me to write a book about fashion buying, because on day one, I had no idea what I was going to do and in the job. And I thought, why isn't there a sort of dictionary of these things that they're yeah. talking about? What, what are strike-offs and lab dips and things like that? So years later, that led me to write my fashion buying book. Really good book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if the, the children are listening and they're going, so what are you buying? What is it that you're buying? Where's it come from? So at that time, we were buying women's wear. I was in a sort of sub-brand of Next, which was called Next Two, spelt T-O-O. Yeah. And it was supposed to be for their for their younger customers, um, who at that point I would say might be aimed something like 18 to 25, more than their typical customers who were mainly in their 30s that they were targeting initially. Um, so we we developed the products with um, manufacturers 
mainly in Hong Kong and Mauritius. That, that's where they were, it's not where we were, but we were in contact with them to sort of develop the ideas. We had our own design team in Next, which, which is very rare. They still do have designers, but very few retailers have their own uh, design teams because as some of the listeners might know, um, it, it's mainly manufacturers who have their designers in the high street and they design for their particular clients so if you get something from top shop it's not probably designed by anyone from from there um yeah or i'll say something else that's that's staying in business um i don't know say like h&m yeah. um then but it, mind you h&m have got massive team of designers as well actually so so some retailers have and some haven't so how does that work if you've got a design team yet you're going out and buying stuff how does that all gel together for the children who probably don't quite understand yeah so so we would essentially be the people who made that gel together so we would get a design package from the designers which would include what we would call a spec so a specification drawing um i, I imagine um students do flat drawings with you caroline that that kind of thing sometimes yes. or, or look at them and so on so a, a, like a picture of a garment as if it was laid flat on a table so there's there's no artistic interpretation or room for doubt it's like th this is exactly the thing we want you to make and it's really precise so they they would do those drawings they would have good technical knowledge they'd say i want uh, this size of button i want it to be in mother of pearl or i want it to be in plastic i want to be from this supplier and so on um, and then we could give that to the supplier which is usually a clothing factory and typically um, say nowadays that would be perhaps in China um, and the buyers would sometimes go out so as a buyer I did go on buying trips taking these packages of, of details and then explaining in detail to the manufacturers what we wanted them to make and the first thing they would make would be a sample of that garment and we would say we want that in viscose or this fabric can you show me some swatches of fabric that, that you've got that would be suitable so we we were an intermediary or a, a go-between between those designers and then the the factory and we'd explain what we wanted them to make get a sample of it made up like like the individual garments that um that your students make and we could then take all those back to the office or have them delivered to the office afterwards. We'd put them all up on a grid on the wall, see how they work together, perhaps throw some of them out because they looked fantastic to begin with, but not when you look at them with everything else together. Or we'd think, oh, there's a gap there. Maybe we, we actually need a blouse in there that's in red because that's, that's the colour that we need this season and we haven't got that yet or we need something with shorter sleeves or this new shape of sleeve or something like that and we'd, we'd go back to suppliers and then say could you fill in that gap for me we'd put them all together and then we would have a big meeting with the senior people in um in the retailer and they would sign it off so they would say yeah that sounds it's all okay to go through so you never have that responsibility just on your shoulders to say right it's personally down to you you have to guess exactly what your customers want but the senior people who've been there for years or have a lot of experience in that market can say yeah that looks good or have you thought about including that or 
you know that one you put up there that design wouldn't actually work for our customer because we did something similar before and it was a dog a dog being the term for something that does not sell very well oh, right. at all. okay we're allowed to even say that now i don't know i've got no now, well the the other the other term was a hound a really really bad seller is called a hound a hound there you go children so quite often it's a long way away for you but it could be or maybe it's even changed by the time you've graduated but you'll find that you know you wouldn't necessarily get a job with a le a, a company you know you would get a job designing or whatever for their supplier so you will see things um if you just wanted to just go online and just look up you know fashion jobs you will see how this works yeah yeah this this is very true and that's the key thing that i think people don't necessarily know when they're in school because why, why would they they haven't heard of the the name of the supplier they've heard of the name of a brand or a retailer but it is those suppliers who are all behind the scenes that are driving the industry. The most jobs are in those suppliers and yet they don't get the credit for it. Mm. Um, so I always think that that's a weird thing about this business. You, you might either have your name on something emblazoned everywhere or you get a job where you are never mentioned almost as if you don't exist. Yeah. And yeah. I always get a bit frustrated about the term designer clothing. Yes. As, as if anything that wasn't really expensive didn't have a designer and it appeared by magic out of the air, so. Yes, yeah. me too, I know, yes. Um, so if you were, um, just for the children, could you just explain what sort of market of the fashion industry are you talking about how high up would that go how what what are we looking at here i mean we know it's a major player that is unspoken as you say but over kind of because maybe they think um you know at what sort of level does this i mean stop at what what happens then so uh, for that system to work it's definitely for the mass market so from the the cheapest level with primark um up to um any of the chains so let's say all saints which will cost i don't know typically four five six times as much as as an equivalent sort of item in primark that that's still following a similar system yeah. and as far as i know all saints would have their own yeah. designers yeah. um so probably what we'd call the middle market or you might call the upper mass market so obviously that that's different and it stops at the point where you've either got brands which have their own brand name on and are sold in lots of different shops or a designer who maybe has their own shop but again also sells in lots of, of different shops so that's the kind of cutoff point is the name on the product of the retailer itself or is it a brand or ready to wear of some kind so that so there's two different systems in operation for those different levels or simply put I think there's probably lots of variations but mainly two variations and, and that's really interesting children because it's very easy to get lost up uh, in this world of like you know high-end design this that and the other and a, you know up in a cloud and it is lovely to you know be creative in that aspect but what you have to remember is real people and the thing is is um Real people with average incomes or very little income still want to look fashionable and they also really care about being sustainable. So this is a really important aspect of the market that we're talking about here um, and kind of, you know, what Helen is doing with 
with you know to about this because you must remember that clothes are for real people too yeah yeah de definitely with you on that and, and if you just think about the general population and how many people there are there who are not like real fashionistas and so on there's a much bigger market out there and therefore there are far more jobs in that area than there are working for the runway and so on yeah absolutely and it's i think it's a really vital job you know because people you know no matter what their income no matter what the circumstance if they're interested in sustainability they'll want to bring it through into what they wear so there are a lot of solutions that we can see out there which are you know very nice very homespun a lot of people aren't very creative but they still want to wear sustainable garments um at a price they can afford so this is such a major part of the fashion industry these days isn't it yeah yeah absolutely it, it is really important and it has been attached more at the upper levels i would say in terms of being sustainable initially because there's a perception that it will cost more and, and it might with some things like having organic cotton for example is more than standard cotton in terms of price um, but it is important to society in general and i hear that more people have been thinking about that during the pandemic when they've had time to think and when they've had an opportunity not to feel as pressurized into buying so many clothes as well exactly because that's the big message isn't it yeah you know, the most mm. sustainable thing you can do is buy less throw away nothing yeah so um so that kind of brings us up to about today or how did you know i know what how did you turn uh you because you went down and you started off teaching buying just from an art from a fashion ba course angle didn't you but then things change and this is the really really interesting not the there's lots of really interesting bits but this is a really important thing to hear what helen did because a lot of you will love fashion, but you are not necessarily interested in the design aspect. So um, Helen's going to tell you about that. Yeah, so there are, there are loads of other jobs apart from designer um, in the industry. But I, I wouldn't have known that, you know, when, when I was really young and I knew I was interested in fashion and I was drawing with my felt pens things that I would have liked to wear if I'd had enough money to, to have them and so on I, I would have had no clue um, what else there was to do um, so I think buyers are, are kind of reasonably well known now of the other jobs that, that are in fashion there's been more kind of publicity about that so I've mentioned a little bit about what their responsibilities are um, there's still some of the glamour that you might feel is attached to being a designer in jobs like buying as well. So I, I talked about overseas suppliers and another point is trying to find out what the trends are. Even if I wasn't the designer myself, I needed to know what the trends were. So there can be quite a lot of travel in the job. Um, you could even work out which place in the world you'd like to go to and then try and get the job that, that fits with that. So if you're doing swimwear, for example, um, you'd probably get invited to um, somewhere like the south of France to go and see what swimwear trends are. So, you know, if you're interested in that, if you want to do menswear or women's wear, typically people will go to New York and go to Paris very frequently. Uh, usually at least twice a year to have a look at trends so you're you're going to see what's happening in the stores but also as a buyer you might be going to see the suppliers 
So I would actually go out to Hong Kong and see the people who were making um, the clothes that I had either designed or, or bought at the time. So I, I was unusual as a buyer in that I did have a design training and I have worked as a designer as well so that I could develop my own ideas. Um, and I could do them on the spot there as well if I needed. I could, you know, I could change around a design or redraw something. Um, yeah, so, so buying has that aspect of it. If, if you want to travel, you have to decide what you want to do really do you feel nowadays is it ethical to travel and and to use so um you know so many air miles in, in terms of doing that is that a good thing to do um or you might decide that you you don't want to have any sort of travel um involved in your job and there are many kind of home-based jobs as well so there could be things like visual merchandising for example um, which is uh, generally based in, in your own country where you um, decide on how the products will be displayed in store. So that connects to store management as well. Um, and that's different from merchandising, isn't it? Yes, they're two entirely different jobs, but that term merchandising is used so much across different areas. And in the US, merchandising is used for all kinds of different things and we don't use that same term over here. So always be careful if you're reading a US textbook, that they're brilliant, there's quite a lot of them around, but if it's something like a Fairchild book, it might tell you how it works in the US, but it doesn't apply over here necessarily. So a merchandiser in the UK is the person who the buyer then passes on the range to. So the, the buyer has decided which of the designs are going to be suitable for the store, when they're going to go in the store, which colours and fabrics they'll be available in. So without designing themselves, they're the people who are choosing them. They would then work alongside and hand over to the merchandisers who um, would decide on um, exactly what quantities would go to which stores and when they get delivered. So the merchandise job is often described as getting things there in the right quantities, uh, in the right place at the right time. Yes. And they're on a, usually on a similar level. They usually get the same kind of salary that a buyer would get, uh, the same kind of benefits, often do travelling to the suppliers as well. And there are fewer people applying for merchandising jobs. So my friends in retailing tell me, um, you've got a, a much better chance of getting a merchandising job. Yeah, it might, yeah, might not be as quite, quite as creative. And if you've got a design background, you might be a bit frustrated about that. But if you love the business and you've done business studies and maths A level and so on, um, that would be great. And you can do almost any kind of degree. You don't just have to have a maths degree. Yes, or, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. We had, um, we've got um, a lovely woman who um, sent her doors to us and she was head merchandiser at Topshop in its glory mm. days. And, um, and she did English at Warwick. Mm. that's right and she um and you know she said it was really interesting and really really interesting for now because she said you know my job as a merchandiser was to you know the last thing we wanted were, were unsold wasted garments so I had to be really clever but the best thing she got she said was going out somewhere and seeing a girl in a top shop dress and 
her knowing that she'd been instrumental in it actually coming into mm. the store and that sort of thing. So, you know, it can still, in that way, it can be very, very rewarding. And the other thing is about buying is quite often a buyer can go in and actually get slightly involved with the design process in a way of saying like, get rid of the pockets, that sort of thing, can't they? So that all comes into it, yeah. Yeah, and that comes into the pricing of it in particular, because that's a key area that the buyers and sometimes the merchandisers are involved in. So you might have a fantastic concept as a designer, but the buyer will look at it and think, mm -mm, can't, you can't put all of that on. But designers get really frustrated about that, of course, because it was their vision. But the buyers will think, I know that my customer will buy something if it's £26 and they'll buy half the amount if we make it 30 pounds so maybe it's got to lose that pocket maybe that's why we don't have enough pockets and um, on skirts and dresses then <laughs> so yeah so that's that's generally how it works so I pulled you right away from the question the point I, I, I made and I apologize and that was so you you went from being a, um, a tutor in a, um, doing a you know in the BA fashion with marketing and it sat alongside in probably in the fashion department and you were kind of yeah so that was how it went it was almost like fashion with an add-on wasn't it Whereas yeah yeah so it was quite a gradual thing and because I studied fashion and marketing the particular course that I did was more like doing a fashion degree plus doing a business studies degree not even as narrow as marketing but we did all the different aspects we did law economics and and everything together so we had this really good overview of how business works on, on a large scale and so we were skilled enough to work in either of those areas and we did it for four years rather than three so um, we had that ability um, to do that so uh, so I taught fashion design which which was my dream when, when I was working with you Caroline I just remember walking to that department full of the mannequins and thinking oh I can't believe this you know pinching yeah. myself that I had the the chance to do that and I got a chance to develop the first fashion buying degree that, that we had um, in the country so because I knew there was a, a place for that as well um, and then I got an opportunity to teach on a fashion marketing degree at another uni, um, which didn't involve the design side. So have, having done the first, you know, um, stint of, of teaching, I thought, well, I'll move on and, and do that. That will be different and a well-renowned university to do that in. So I taught fashion and marketing and then an opportunity um, came up while I was there to work in their business school just teaching marketing but it was a it was a better opportunity there was more support for the research that I wanted to do and by that time I'd found out about sustainable fashion that was becoming more of a, a key thing I, I was writing books and I wanted the support to do that research in my job so I swapped over to their business school and I taught marketing which was pretty much what I'd been teaching for the previous few years but not just in a fashion context then so I could put my fashion examples in but I could also talk about computers or sport or anything else I wanted to add in there and to my surprise loads of the students there who were doing maybe a marketing degree or a management degree were interested in fashion yeah. and when they did their dissertations which is their their final project I know you know that Caroline <laughs> but for any watchers who don't so it's you, uh, you, you know, <laughs> a dissertation is a 
is a kind of well-researched, and this is like in straightforward terms, it's a well-researched essay that you do to support your degree. And it's not necessarily exactly what you're studying as your degree. It's got a as different aspect, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's usually very focused. It's probably influenced by something you learned on your degree. And of the students who were doing those projects, um, which are led by a supervisor, so a, a tutor that you get to see every few weeks or, or maybe weekly, depending where you are, um, to support you on it. Lots of them wanted to do fashion. So it, it really surprised me. I thought maybe I'd actually cut off from fashion and that was a really big step for me. Um, but I found that I hadn't. And colleagues who were working alongside me were always impressed that I knew about the fashion business or wanted to collaborate with me on things, especially because they were looking into branding which of course relates very well to the fashion business. Um, so I worked there for some time. I worked in other universities as well, doing, doing the same thing as a, a part-time tutor while I had a permanent job as well. So I, I worked at Nottingham, Trent, Leicester and Loughborough universities simultaneously. And Loughborough had a retail buying module that they asked me to come in to teach because it was so hard to get anyone who actually had that knowledge and uh, at the moment I live really near there and I was really pleased to have been asked so I did that for about 10 years taught their retail marketing management students about buying um, obviously used lots of fashion examples brought in some of my friends from the fashion industry um, to talk to them but also discussed buying you know other areas like food and and so on um, and then two years ago I got the opportunity to have a job at, uh, at Durham University doing the same kind of thing so I teach retail marketing there um, and it, it just gives me the opportunity to incorporate fashion as much as I want. Again, up there, loads of students want to do dissertations about the fashion business. There's more than I can handle, so they have to be shared out with other people. Um, so, yeah, I am surprised. So even if you go into a general kind of business related degree, you will have an opportunity sometimes to choose which companies you base your project on and when you do your final project or dissertation, you'll usually get to choose where you focus. Um, so again, so, so don't feel you just have to do a fashion degree if you want to be in the fashion business. And as Caroline said, I can think of buyers who've got um, history degrees, English degrees and, and so on. Um, so you don't have to just have a fashion degree. No, not at all. So, um... Well, should we move on to the children's questions now? So, yeah. Children, we, there's some, but some things that Helen has covered. I'm going to read out your questions so that you know that you're heard. So, <clears throat> for example, Arvia um, asks, Arvia's 11, and she's in the Philippines. She said, were you interested in fashion when you were at school? And was fashion always your first job wise? So it's kind of answered that, I think. Yeah. Um, except that when I was at school, I had it in my head without ever asking anybody that I wouldn't be able to work in fashion. And that was because we used to do what was called home economics then, which was oh, sewing yes. and cooking. And yeah, so even in the 1970s, all, all the girls had to do that and the boys. We also had to do woodwork. So they were already being kind of forward thinking and, and being um, equality focused then. So I, I did sewing. But then in the second year of 
senior school, so that's when you're about 12, um, I got the chance to do Latin and, and languages is another area that I would have been interested in. So I did Latin and you had to drop sewing to do it. So immediately I decided in my head at 12, I won't be able to be a fashion designer then. No. Not knowing, of course, that you couldn't study it much later. You don't even have to have done any sewing till you're 18. But, you yeah. know, I, I didn't know this. So it was only later on um, when I found that. But I wanted to be um, a journalist or a makeup artist. Uh, they were all of, of interest to me. And yes, yeah, so it was it was only later that I realised that I had an option to study fashion and textiles in the art college course that I happened to have gone to. But I was so fascinated by clothes when I was younger because we didn't have new clothes. Oh, we, yeah. we didn't have enough money for any new clothes in my family. So I had my cousin's clothes. That, that's absolutely all I had. I didn't have any other choices. Yeah. I think I got one or two things at, at Christmas once. So yeah. I'm sounding like a Victorian person here, but that that is how it was for me anyway not 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 for everybody but that was the north in the 70s and 80s yeah. and for me clothes were just such magical things and I could see them in newspapers or um, in the pages of a catalogue we waited for catalogues to be issued twice a year oh, and my yeah. sister and I would look through and see what we we're interested in and then I would draw them so so for me that's that's what I was doing I was trying to draw what what I could have and you know I, I I'm so pleased that there are not as many people in that position today but I do realize that there are some still like that yeah. and it also comes full circle because we were living in second-hand clothes out of no choice whatsoever but now I would say to you that's a really good thing to do it's the most sustainable thing mm -hmm. that I, you can do. I think also um, for your in your situation it was because your families didn't have any money but I think it was quite usual in those days to not buy new clothes as well unless it was Christmas or something like that and then you would you know either way your mum's or jumble sale stuff or you know so I, I think it was I always feel we have a responsibility to teach the children about our experiences because um you know we we, we remember how it was before mm. did you feel you were missing out I didn't did you feel I, I, I did because I knew people who had lots of, of clothes. Oh. But I must say, when, when people did get them, they were usually from the market. They, they weren't from anything exclusive or whatever. But for me, even to get something on the market was, was so exciting. And, and they were the cool girls who, who got, uh, you know, like circle skirts from the market and, and stuff like that. So I, I wanted to learn how to make them and how to do that. So I was thrilled when I finally got the skirt. I just think um, that probably doesn't happen anymore, but you'd always have a market in your town and they'd sell clothes. Um, and uh, it was a big part of what people did, wasn't it? They went to the market and they bought clothes and they were a little bit hit and miss. There was, I, remember, I remember up in Nottingham, when I went up to teach there, there was a, there was a market and, Le and Leicester Market and all these places. So nowadays it's mostly just fruit and veg and bits and bobs, isn't it? But then that was a real fashion choice to shop from a market yeah and, and also some businesses we know started off on 
on market stalls, didn't they, including fashion businesses, and you could get quite cool stalls. For us, more so than that, as we got a bit older, as we were 16, 17, we went to something that we would call a flea market, yes. um, which is would now be called a vintage market and would, yes. be, would be seen as very posh and cool, but um, it, it had things from, original things from the 60s and 70s, and we could buy them really cheaply I, I remember I had a dress when, when I met my boyfriend I had a dress that cost 50p that I used to wear all the time I remember there was a, a, a Preston market I think it was Preston there was um a shoe place it was called Bobby Balls <clears throat> and Bobby Balls used to sell shoes but they used to put they used to string them together with string and so they used to put a hole on inside of each of your shoes <gasps> But nobody cared because they were so cheap. And so, yeah. you know, I mean, in those days, you just didn't buy that much, did you? So it was a it was a big thing. You had to get some shoes from Bobby Balls in Preston. Um, I think yeah. Preston, yeah. Or was it Blackburn? Blackburn. I think it was Blackburn Market. Yeah. So it was a yeah. big thing. Yeah, yeah. It was. And my friends who, who could afford to get new clothes from time to time, they had very few of them. There was no kind of, oh, well, I'll change because I'm going out tonight or whatever. People would easily wear things for like, you know, from one day to the next and, and not feel pressurised to change every day or feel like they might be seen on Facebook. So they had to, which is what my students tell me, that they've got to wear something different yeah. each time they go out because there's a record of it on facebook so there was none of that no 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 i mean the school teachers they used to change once a week so you'd have because i was i was so uninspired at school you t i was so busy looking at what they used to wear so the history teacher used to wear the same outfit it's all thursday and she's come in another outfit and that was quite normal yeah, yeah actually yeah, yeah yeah i can still do that game very easily <laughs> I don't remember ever doing that, but yeah, that's that's a really good point. I'm terrible. Right, so um, I'm going to ask, move you on now, if that's okay, because you've got so much to tell us. And that is, uh, it's by Lila, she's 11. How is your company sustainable? Are you zero waste? And if so, how do you achieve this? Okay, so, um, so I'm not running a company myself at, at the moment in terms of being sustainable, but my research is into that area and I've either done that in those jobs that I've mentioned, um, and when I say I've done that, I've talked to people who work in fashion businesses, some focusing on sustainability, um, or, or some who are just incorporating that in their standard way of working. Um, my research also involves talking to consumers about their views on sustainability. And um, my colleagues and I um, in Nottingham have had funding from the government who've paid for us to do some investigations into what consumers and producers of, of clothing can do to be more sustainable. Um, so I've um, I've made a list because there's so many things. So I've just made a list to to refer to, and I've just picked out some of the oh, more brilliant. important things that can be done. So this is for businesses in general rather than mine because I I work more than full time at the university. So um, yeah. so I, I think one key area is that if you um, think about what the designers are doing, and I hope that some of you do become designers at, at some point, you have the biggest power to make products more sustainable than anybody else in the chain, because you're deciding what goes into them. Obviously, as I've mentioned, buyers can influence that as well, because they have some say in which products actually go into production and go into 
stores. Um, so it's been estimated that about 80% of that impact on the environment is decided at the design stage. So that, that's the kind of power that designers have. And I think that will become more and more well known. I mean, not really. It's not really great that that, that we're in the situation. It's really great that you've answered that. That's great. You brought that up. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so it's so it's important to be aware of that. And and sometimes the designers really have to stand up for themselves to say that because it might be that the company, which is more about profits and making money and so on, in many cases, will be saying, "But that's more expensive. Let let's do this." And designers need to be strong in order to put sustainability in there. But more companies are recognizing that it needs to be more sustainable. And my hope is that the law might change uh, at some point uh, as it has started to gradually do. And even the fact that th this was the previous government and the other government before that, not the current government who, who paid for us to do this research, but it shows that they were thinking of doing those kind of things, even if this particular government yeah. stopped it. Anyway, I won't go into politics. But, um, we always drift into that area. Um, so yeah. Often led by yeah. me. So yes, let's, <laughs> but yeah, we're thinking about children. So um, that's been absolutely amazing. So that's kind of Helen's story and she's responded to questions relating to her. Now we're coming to the next bit and this is the advice needed questions. Now, a lot of children listening to this won't be part of fashion school. They'll be from all, you know, they, they won't have gone there. They'll make, they'll just be hearing this in their bedroom, wherever they are, you know. So they're all different, they're all different types of children. I firmly believe that children come into fashion for very, very different reasons. So our questions are wide and varied to reflect that. So the first question I'm going to ask you is by Elise and she's 14. And um, I'm not very arty, but I love fashion. I'm quite good at math, sciences and computers. What sort of job is out there for you? Okay, so I mentioned some of the jobs that might be suitable. You could be ideal to be a fashion merchandiser in a retailer. So uh, as I mentioned, they're the people who make sure the products get through to the shops and organize all that. They're good at liaising with people, understanding numbers because they have to decide on quantities. They have to see how much it costs. They need to know how much the exchange rates are uh, if you're buying something from another country and, and how that differs and what the regulations are. But don't worry if any of you are sitting there and thinking, oh, I don't know any of that. How do I find that out? Of, of course, your company will tell you and keep yes. you up to date. So what they want to do is get people who would be interested in doing that but they will teach them about how it works and you usually work alongside a more senior member of staff just assisting them and you pick up a lot of the stuff just by osmosis because you know you're around them you just hear what's happening and then you have an understanding and then you might get promoted into that more senior position yourself. Um, there are also jobs in fashion marketing, so that might be on the advertising side or there's loads of other parts of marketing that aren't as obvious as advertising. We, we know advertising as consumers because it's, it's contacting us, it's communicating directly with us, but there's also public relations, 
PR, which is particularly important, I would say more important than advertising is in the fashion business. And that's about making sure that your um, clothes for a brand or a retailer get seen in magazines or on websites or on blogs and, and so on. Of course, you could be a blogger or a vlogger yourself or a YouTuber about fashion and anything in those no, kind really of areas. Yeah. yeah. And you can also work on um, what's known as data analytics. So this means getting in data, which is mainly computer computerized information that the company holds, that you can analyze to make something of it. So when you go into a shop, you're contributing to this and they put through your details at the till. Um, that's all going back up to head office. And there's all that data which can be analyzed to see, well, in new look, uh, in, in Leicester on this date, how many people went in, what, what are the busiest times, does that mean we should have more staff working at that time, or should we have more promotion in that branch, because actually the branch in this part of London is really busy at that time, but it's quiet in the Leicester one, we, we don't know why, maybe they'll do some market research to find out about that. Um, so there's a variety of different jobs that you can do, there are, of course, lots of technical jobs as well. And I think yours, yours is more business orientated, but you'll understand that there are the mainstays of the fashion business are actually pattern cutters, fabric technologists, textile technologists who make sure that the clothes you buy actually stay together. So that's for anyone who really likes sewing and fabric and so on. But um, yeah, on the business side, there's loads of jobs that make those products that have been designed actually get to the final customer. Amazing, absolutely. Yeah, really in the thick of fashion. So we've got another one here. I want to be a lawyer in fashion. Does that even exist? Yeah, so it, it does. And I have met one when I was um, out with a friend who works for a big retailer and we, we bumped into somebody at a concert and she said oh she's actually the lawyer that I, I work with and this has become um, a really frequent area for retailers to engage in in recent years um, not necessarily for the best reasons it's usually because um, another store rips off your ideas so let's say Zara has got something in the store and you um, go into a, a competitor like Mango they've got something really similar, but Zara had it in first. Zara might appoint a lawyer to go and uh, talk to Mango's lawyer about why they've got something so similar. Um, and it might be, uh, I'm not suggesting this happens in Zara and Mango, but it, let's say it could be any, any store. Sometimes it's because they actually both looked at the same designer for inspiration in the first place. They didn't copy each other, but they did copy somebody else. And those big designer companies also have their lawyers who will go around seeing who's, who's stolen their ideas. I find it strange though, because the very concept of fashion, to be fashionable, it has to be a style that is adopted by many people or, or at least a group of people. Mm. Otherwise it's not kind of called fashion anyway it's clothing but it's not necessarily fashion so you get people suing and counter suing each other um so they need to employ people full-time to do that so there are specialists who are lawyers who who just work in the fashion business and there's plenty to keep them busy 
Absolutely. And also lawyers are needed, you know, when you're uh, organizing stores, when you're doing different things, you know, there has to be contracts. There are all sorts of things. So, um, you know, fashion is an enormous industry and it needs lawyers as much as any other industry, any other area. So um, you can be a lawyer and you can focus on fashion related things. Obviously, I don't think you can have a can you have a fashion lawyer? I don't know, but maybe something, something, you think yeah. you can, just, for, is that because they're employed by that fashion brand? Or they're, yeah. They're, okay, right, I get yeah, you. I don't, I don't think there's a fashion law degree that I've, I've come across, but they could work in that sector and specialise, and, and that's the same with lawyers generally, they might work in a particular kind of product area. And because um, I, I guess some of the, the viewers might know, or listeners, that, um, fashion is so significant in many countries and certainly in the UK it's the second biggest business mm. um, because we have to wear clothes by law don't we and we want to and we we choose to and we generally buy too many and so on so that's where a lot of our money goes you won't be surprised to find that number one is food obviously we need that even more to survive don't we so in the end it all goes back down to our really basic human instincts and and needs but because fashion is such an enormous business, uh, even if you call it clothing, maybe rather than just that smaller segment that we sometimes refer to as fashion, then you've got people who are lawyers and in all kinds of jobs. You know, there are computer programmers who might specialize in um, fashion retailers' websites. So pretty much any area can be applied to the fashion business in terms of careers. Brilliant. And you just mentioned then about people buying more clothes than they need. And how do you see that in the, say, the market that you are focusing with at the moment in terms of sustainability? How do you see that's part of the company's bigger picture? And how does that work for them, that their customers buy less? I think it needs to be addressed by the senior people in the companies. And sometimes that's driven by what designers and other people in the company have said. So a good company will get feedback from the ground up and not just have bosses telling people exactly what, what they should do. Um, you could have a kind of a society at work where people get together with a, with a similar interest and they could pass that information on um, to the senior people. Sometimes you get very good managers who recognize these, these kind of things. So from my knowledge, I, I'm generalizing here, but some years ago, managers, might be a bit frustrated by people who started talking about being more sustainable and environmentally friendly and just found it a, a bit of an annoying and niche thing to do. It's become such a big thing in society that a lot of them are more interested in it or they feel like they've got to be seen to be interested in it yeah, for yeah. their customers to respond. I don't mind which way it is too much yeah. as long as they do it and they don't just have a policy that they don't actually act upon. So you can do that whichever level you are in a company, you probably have some influence over things that are bought for the company or that are used there. So have, have your say, put your voice forward where, wherever you can. And then also as a consumer, you have a say um, because you can either choose to buy something or not. And it's like voting. It's just like political yes. voting. I buy into sustainability or, or I don't. Um, so I mentioned about designers having a real responsibility and effect on sustainability. 
but actually there's a much bigger impact from consumers mm -hmm. because um, it, as long as a lot of us act uh, as yeah. effectively as possible, in the end, you could have whatever the company has produced and no consumers could buy it. So we, we have that choice and we have the biggest impact whether we choose products are, that are sustainable or once we buy them, what we do with them. So this is even more important than whether or not it had to be flown over or shipped from China and so on. It's what we do with it when we buy it. Right. So how, how often and how effectively we wash it, do, do we wash it on 30 degrees or 40 degrees? Do we use tumble drying, which is terrible for the environment? Or do, do we make an effort to put our clothes out when it's sunny or when the heating's on or something along those lines? Um, we have a bigger impact, even more so than, um, than that initial designer, when you look at the number of us as consumers and what we can do. So looking after your clothes and then deciding what to do with them at the end. Mm -hmm. So sharing them with family or friends, um, giving them to charity, uh, using them for repurposing, using them for cleaning yeah. if necessary. And uh, any of those, that disposal is really important because in this country, we send up to 2 million metric tonnes of um, clothing and textile products into landfill yeah. which means it just gets stuck in the ground it also releases methane while it's there contributes to greenhouse gases which um, makes climate change worse mm -hmm. so the, there are all those things and we will run out of space in the ground Absolutely. to put all our rubbish into and it's very easy, children, to think, uh, oh, landfill, that's really bad, that's awful. But you think what your stuff is going into landfill. What we try to encourage children to do um, within the fashion school is to hang on to whatever they can and, like, to find, like, it's, you know, cut off old uh, old socks to use as cuffs. Look at, you can find zips. I just found a zip on an old umbrella thing to unpick, you know, because quite often it's really hard to get sustainable um, haberdashery at the moment uh, for you kids. So just think of that, throw away very, very, very little. The less it goes in the landfill, you can repurpose it, you can pass it on, you can upcycle it. And, um, you know, you, you really have to also think about when you buy something and you think, oh, it's just, it's a trend, it looks fab, I'm going to wear it. You have to really think about what you're saying with it. And Helen is so right about what you're buying is like voting. OK, so you can have all the most worthy principles. But if you're going into somewhere and you know that they, the price it's come at, it can't be ethically produced and you're wearing it. Are you saying I support low paid workers? I support um, child slavery. Think very carefully about what you're saying with what you wear. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. I, I think it's. I think it's hard as well. There are so many messages about sustainability that are kind of like us saying, you mustn't do that, you mustn't do that. And 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 I know that how boring that can sound to have those sort of messages, especially if you're in your teens or, or at school. Um, so you can also look at it from a positive angle because we know that, that that's much more interesting for people. So it can be fun. Can you make your own things? Oh, can you actually so investigate? So the kind of things that they're doing with you, Caroline, I would say would be the really positive side of that, getting those skills, those sewing skills. In our research, we found that um, 
people didn't repair things very much. And most of them said, we just don't have the skills to do it. And clothes are so cheap, we'll just, we'll buy some more. And that the only time they would get things fixed is if they were particularly expensive, or I, I'm generalizing here, not, not everybody, but, but generally speaking, they would get it fixed by what were known as uh, older female relatives. So the, those who'd done home economics at school, probably, like I was talking to you about, who already knew that. And there was even someone who, who worked in a factory full time sewing. She didn't bother to repair things because clothes have become so cheap that they are cheaper in the shops now than when I left yeah. school. Yeah, exactly. I left, so, I left school in the, in the, in the 79, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so for us, people of our age, it's like there's a sale on absolutely all year round. And when the sales themselves come, the prices are unbelievable to us because clothes used to be so much more valuable mm. um, to us. And now they're being considered as disposable items, almost like how we view the PPE, you know, the clothes that are being worn in the, the hospitals mm. that, that have to be thrown away afterwards. It's almost treated um in that way and i think we need to put more of a value on clothes and obviously when you make your own clothes they have such a value to them don't they because you know exactly what went into them your your love and your blood sweat and tears went into that and, I, and i've still got things that i made from decades ago because i can't give them away they're, they're like a part of me absolutely absolutely part of your history part of your memory and your life mm. when um I think that uh, I feel really excited about this because um, although I bang on all the time with the children about you know what they're wearing, think about it. I think there's a massive new movement, and it's so wonderful. It's not even that new. About now, people see things like Depop and Etsy, and they're making their own things. And on TikTok, there's yeah, and it shows you actually how accessible and easy it is. And um, I know I hang around with teenagers who are into fashion and will be making their own thing but I see it everywhere I see I suddenly see children and teen you know sort of like from I'd say about 10 upwards wearing things that I think a couple of years ago they wouldn't have been you know there's a, there's a value in uh second-hand garments now and that's lovely and that's how it should be or even third hand so I think it is an exciting time and I'm hoping it's going to come uh, and you guys, when you get older, you're going to sort this out. You know, the mess we left you in. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and, and we have responsibility to, to help you with yeah. that. And I know my daughter's worked as a, an assistant manager in a shop that sells vintage clothing. And I was so proud of her yeah. for doing that and, and being part of it and developing that. And with the bonus that she was perceived as being really cool for doing that. Yeah. And, you know, so it is seen as a, a trendy thing nowadays um whereas it you know it perhaps wasn't for a while when we had the novelty of buying all all this new stuff and you know we just don't have to there's probably enough clothing in the world now to sustain us for many years to come absolutely absolutely no i agree with you um right i'm gonna go to your next question now because i'm just pulling you away from me all the time sorry i know you're um so we are on question 18 and this is another advice one and this is from Ruby, she's 12, and she wants to know what personality traits do I need? So um, whether it's to be a designer or, or any other job that's in the fashion industry, um, 
I think you pretty much need the, the same kind of traits. So again, you, there are quite a few, and I've written these down just to make a note, and this is in, in my research, the, these are the kind of things that I'd put forward. Um, so obviously you need to be a, a creative person or somebody who's interested in encouraging creativity. And that can be from somebody who likes drawings and doing the visual side of it, or they might be technically creative or just creative with ideas and thinking, what, what kind of shop setup can we use for, for this business? So it doesn't just have to be that you're an illustrator. There's lots of other um, ways of perceiving creativity. Um, what most employers are looking for, and I, I did actually do a, a study for, um, for one of my own projects about what employers wanted from um, people in the fashion business. Um, and to my surprise, I don't think any of them said, I want them to be a good pattern cutter or I want them to do the best drawings. They went straight on to what we would call transferable yeah. skills or maybe soft skills. Um, they wanted them to be organised. Yes. They wanted them to be uh, reliable, well-motivated, good at working in teams. And that's that's what they specified. Now, they did presume that they would have already some technical and design skills from the degrees that they'd done. That was automatic. But it wasn't top of their list. Yes. Um, they want people to understand the customers that, that they're aiming for. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing. And that's why somebody like Caroline was an absolute dream to work with of all the many people that I've worked with, because she's got those kind of skills. And I think teaching you is not just giving you the technical skills, but also passing on uh, some of that kind of knowledge and ability as well. Oh, thank you for that. Um, it's, it's really interesting. You're, you're really echoing what uh, last week I interviewed Emma Davidson from Densa and she was saying exactly the same sort of thing. And you know about how, in case any of you haven't listened to that too, about just always remember to be, uh, have a smile, just always be the first one, say, I can do that. You know, don't, um, you know, that that's how you'll get forward and transferable skills. You can, you know, what, and I'm sure you've been in this position, Helen, where people have come to you with a portfolio and they've gone, this is my concept and this is this, and this is that. And I got a first. But actually, mm -hmm. what you really need is the right personality, because if, you know, the portfolio might look OK, but it's it's that's not enough at all. Yeah. And I think if at designer level, that might be different. So, again, I'm talking about my, my area of interest in the mass market and then suppliers here. But of course, it is really significant what what's in your portfolio at, at that higher level and that it's creative and original but you also need all those other things I said yeah, otherwise absolutely. you won't get anywhere if yeah. you've got fantastic ideas but you actually will get them done a week late your company has lost a week's profits there mm. um, and your salary might have to be reduced or something or they can't you know they can't stay in business in the same way if they haven't got organized and reliable well-motivated yeah. people. You need to be a good team player. So if you're handing things in late, that's making having an impact on the rest of your team. So, mm. uh, yeah, no, I just think it's it's so important to remember that, gang, you know, um, transferable skills are absolutely vital. And I think it's the same in every area of the industry, from the highest to the lowest. You know, nobody wants a, an awkward person. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay, that's the, well, thank you again. And then we're going on to, oh, here's a good one. If you have one tip to give children like me on how to start a fashion career, and it's Ava and she's 14. 
Um, so my, my one tip would be just find as much as you can out about it. Um, immerse yourself in it as much as you can manage to do. Uh, read everything that you can get hold of about the business, have an understanding of the different levels. Even though I've been talking mainly about the mass market, I couldn't do that job without understanding the structure and how the higher levels of the industry work and to be inspired um, by that. So yeah, just find out what you can. Uh, that's the key thing. And what I hear from my friends who are still employing people in the fashion business, um, the people that they want to employ are the ones who understand something about the company. So they, they don't just go there and say, I can do this and this, look, I'm brilliant. They might be, that's fine. But if they don't understand about that company and what kind of customers they're trying to sell to, they probably won't get the job and they haven't bothered to sort of read into the background so, so yeah re reading and research absolutely oh that's that's great advice and then our last question is um and this is uh by sunny who's 16 i've been out of school since 12 since 12 years i was used by a gang in county lines at 15 i really want to get into sustainable street fashion selling classic trainers and starting my own label how do I start? Okay, so th there are various different opportunities there. Ideally, that would be through education if there is a, a possibility, although it does mention that the person had, had left school. If, if people are older than the standard sort of entry age for further education colleges or for degrees, they do take into account that they're mature students. So I think at, for a university at 23, you're counted as a mature student and you don't necessarily have to have the qualifications that they uh, say that they require for you to get in. So that might be, I don't know, B, B and C at A level, typically to, to get onto a fashion degree, say, depending, you know, in the mid sort of level. Um, so if you showed that you had a real interest in, in that, again, reading and researching whatever you've got access to, if, if and when they're, they're up and running, getting into libraries and finding out information, if, if you don't have access to your own resources, that, that can be done for free if you've got time um, and the opportunity to do that. Mm. Find out about how the business works, read everything that you can do for free or that you can afford to buy to, to look into that. Um, try and pick up those skills. Aim, if you can at all possible, to get some kind of courses, even if they were part-time courses and not a complete degree. What about, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. What about if, you know, you've been out of school since 12, that's a massive, massive amount mm. of time, and you've probably been making your own money as well by this or that mm. during that time. And uh, education is not going to... It's just, you can see they're never ever going to go into that world because they're not interested in that route. They can they can see it, they're really, um, you know, they're so savvy. They're probably, you know, mm. entrepreneurs really. And um, they're so savvy, they know their market like anything. They know, you know, everything, what sells, what doesn't. They're, they're clued up, but they, but maybe education isn't the route for them. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, however, there are some options that aren't, you know, re really formal 
options. If you look at something like Coursera, that can give you um, a free course on sustainable fashion. Oh, what, what, could you yeah. spell that out to them, everybody? So it's um, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A. Brilliant. And if you look on that, you can sign up. Copenhagen Business School does a free course about sustainable fashion currently on there, for example, and there will be others. So you can choose which aspect you want. So whether that education is a degree, which is obviously a massive investment and, and difficult for many uh, to do, I completely understand. Or if it's a short course that's been done at home for eight hours or something, um, you'll find out more about that. And what I would suggest is if, if you haven't got the time to sort of build up all the technical skills and so on, you can still get into the fashion business by um, purchasing items if, and you can start off from the smallest amount and gradually build up. So you buy, say, two pairs of trainers and you customise them in some way yeah. and you sell them on and the profit from that you put into it so you can Absolutely. get three or four pairs and, and you can build up very gradually um the, there is there's a, a really good company i can send you some some details if if those can be shared um as well of companies that have started from people who haven't got a fashion background they might have had a business education but yeah. not not that sort of fashion side. Um, so you can buy things and develop things with other people and do it very gradually. And that teamwork, working with other people who've got the skills who are interested in doing that, um, selling them to friends initially, or maybe starting on a market stall, you know, having one day where you, you've put together a pile of different things that, that meet your kind of sustainability requirements. Um, and you, you've chosen the right part of London or whichever part of the country yeah. it is to go to for that. Or you perhaps start with um, a website where you can sell them or you sell them on part of eBay um, or Etsy, as you've mentioned. There's so, um, there are so fewer barriers now to getting into that compared to how it would have been a few years ago because you can do that online. Amazing. But yeah, I'd really urge you to do something. Yeah, I thought, you know, that that is such um, a difficult that. story that you mentioned in that question. And, and I think there is a way out of it. And I really hope that does work. I think um, a lot of um, companies, because uh, when I first heard Sonny's story and I was I was talking with him and um, he told me about some brands that he was looking at. And one of them is called Keiko London and Keiko means blessings. That's K-K-E-I-K-O London. And they, I've, I'm so sorry, I've kind of just stumbled into this bit so I can't remember the guy's name, but he tells his story on his website and he, you know, school didn't work for him. Um, he had his own problems and he started this up on his own. And it's lovely, and there's a really clear message that comes from it. And uh, uh, so, you know, do look at things like that too. You know, Trump um, perhaps not start. I would love to interview Keiko, but I haven't managed to um, do that yet. But uh, you know, there are mentors out there, and then there's another one. Uh, I think I was speaking with uh, Emma the other week, and it's called Slider Cuts. And it's actually a barber's and it's he's based in London, but obviously in this current climate, doesn't matter where you are, you know, because we're not going anywhere. And he does, um, so he's like done, you know, street barbering for quite a few years. He's got it under his belt. He, he's really successful. He also gets, this is, this is what I like, he also gets invited by um, 
Louis Vuitton and things like that. So um, to go and cut there. And he does a mentoring thing as well. So, um, but that's really amazing advice. And, you know, I think that, may, uh, you know, there are, there are more options, just like you say. Things are, there are more options for you today. And it's really important that we have people asking questions from every sector of wherever they live, whatever their experiences are. If you are interested in fashion, you're interested in fashion. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was absolutely jam-packed with so much information. Um, I, I, I'm, it's just incredible. Thank you, Helen. Thank you.